Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello, and welcome to Voices of Africa. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Kirsten Hunt. Kirsten is Head of Carbon Neutrality at De Beers, the world's leading diamond company. The company has exploration, mining, grading, marketing, and retail operations. It works throughout the whole diamond value chain. Significant operations and a significant number of employees in Southern Africa with diamond source from Botswana, South Africa, and Namibia. So today we're here to learn from Kirsten how De Beers is embarking on its plans to be carbon neutral in scope one and two operations by 2030 and beyond that for scope three emissions by 2050. Kirsten, it's a particular delight for me to be able to speak to you today. We've known each other for close on 20 years. We first met when we were both living in South Africa. I've been able to observe your career journey, which has been stellar and fascinating to observe. I'd love to invite you to say hi to our audience and tell us about where you grew up, what you studied, why you pursued the career that you have, which is not a usual career path. It's quite unusual in some respects. And the role that you're performing now at De Beers. Thanks so much for, for having me. Hi to you and your audience, obviously. I never know how detailed or how short to be. I'm Dutch. I grew up in the Netherlands in a small town close to Utrecht. I've always been fascinated by traveling and international development. Bob Geldof's band-aid made a deep impression. And since then, I decided I wanted to be in development. And because of that, I studied international relations at the Groningen University in the Netherlands. And after that, I did a, another master's in international humanitarian assistance in Aix-en-Provence uh, in France. And during that work, I worked a lot on conflict. And at the time, there was the conflicts in Liberia, Sierra Leone, which were closely linked to conflict minerals. So I wrote a thesis on conflict minerals. And because of that, my first job was, was in a small Dutch development NGO, actually working on a campaign called Fatal Transactions on Conflict Diamonds. And that's how I got into mining and basically started what is by now almost a 20-year career in, in mining accidentally. I'm surrounded by engineers. I'm usually one of the very few non-engineers around. That initial work was really about working with local NGOs, trying to strengthen their capacity, giving them a voice in discussions with governments, with companies, obviously, to make sure they were heard and really focusing on, okay, these minerals are there. Nobody's against them being mined. We need them to, to a large extent. But how do we make sure that they are being extracted in a way that actually benefits development? And I think that has been a little bit of golden threat, if you like, in my career. That NGO were basically absorbed by ActionAid. So I worked for them based in Johannesburg. Uh, I then did consulting for a little while because I wanted to understand more of the corporate side of it as well and did a lot on social environmental impact assessments. From there, I moved to World Wildlife Fund based in Gabon, Central Africa, really working with them again on how to engage corporates that were starting to develop oil, gas and mining operations in, in the tropical rainforest in Central Africa and looking at, okay, if that's being done, how can that be done in the most sustainable way possible in a way that's the least harmful for the environment? From there, I moved on to the World Bank based in Washington, D.C. and very much working with governments building government capacity around 
social and environmental management of the mining sector. Working more and more on the climate side of things, we developed a strategy within the World Bank called Climate Smart Mining at the time, really focusing on, okay, if we're going to transition to the amount of renewable energy that the world needs to keep global warming below one and a half degrees, we're going to need a hell of a lot of minerals to build all the solar and wind and batteries and electric vehicles, etc., that are needed. So what does that mean for the countries where these minerals come from? And how can we make sure that these countries actually benefit from it and that those minerals are also extracted in the most responsible and clean way possible? I've done that for eight years and then I moved on to my current job at De Beers as the head of carbon neutrality, which is basically leading the De Beers climate strategy and trying to get us to carbon neutrality by 2030. That's my career in a nutshell. Yes, well, there's the golden thread running through there, as you say, the imperative to ensure that mining is a positive force for, for development. I don't suppose you ever thought you'd end up at De Beers, a great mining company, a long history and pedigree, but also a, a luxury brand company, high streets, retailing to consumers in some of the smartest suburbs in the world. It places, I suppose, a specific onus on you as a business, given that you're so consumer facing, to really be able to demonstrate to your customers the integrity of your operations, the sustainability of your approach to the mining and to everything through the value chain. In your role as head of carbon neutrality, you're responsible for ensuring that De Beers has a climate strategy, which I know you have, and now for leading and implementing that strategy with the different operations and arms of your business, but also with the support of the broad Anglo-American family. I know you've got partnerships that extend well beyond the business, and my suspicion is that your experience working with the NGO community has been very relevant in forging some of the partnerships that are essential to delivering on your climate strategy, which I've read and seen has an emphasis on a just transition. It's not just about emissions reduction, it's very much about how you can make this transition in a way that socioeconomically uplifts the communities in which you operate and that are so dependent on your operations in Southern Africa in particular, but also around your broader environmental safeguarding and specifically when that comes to water and to biodiversity. So tell us about these ambitious environmental and emissions goals that you've set up and how these are translating into operational changes within the De Beers business. Yeah, that is a big challenge, definitely. What you first said, I think that that's what makes the beers, the fact that it is consumer, that is a consumer-facing mining company makes the beers so interesting. I mean, yes, we're part of Anglo, but we are also indeed directly selling diamond jewelry to consumers who have a very clear demand for these diamonds to be sustainable and responsible and have a low or zero carbon footprint. So much more than, say, a company that that produces copper that ends up being people will not stop buying copper wires because the copper is not produced sustainably, right? But for diamonds, there's that very, very clear demand that we want to respond to because it's the right thing to do, but also because there is a very clear business imperative which gives a great sense of urgency and therefore also a great sense of ownership within the company for, for the work and within the, all the employees have a, have a real passion to get this done, which helps a lot internalizing the strategy. Also, I find the strategy is very much about telling the stories, right? It's really explaining what we're trying to do and not just about carbon numbers. My great frustration in talking about climate change and carbon strategies is so often that it gets reduced to just emission data. 
And that is such a small part of the story, especially if you try to operate, well, you and I both operate, right, in, in Africa, where we're trying to actually make a transformation happen. So our strategy to achieve carbon neutrality for scope one and two by 2030 and a 25% reduction of scope three by 2030 and then moving towards net zero by 2050 is around reduce, replace, remove report. So reduce is really about efficiency. I think that's the low hanging fruit, right? Turn of the lights, turn of the engines and the operate everything you can as efficient as possible. It's replacing fossil-based electricity. I mean, our power in Southern Africa all comes from, from coal-based power plants. So how do we replace that with renewables? Praise fossil fuels. That's a big challenge. Part of it is done through electrification, but part of it will have to be around finding alternative fuels. Anglo-American is doing great work with the hydrogen fuel trucks. So can we deploy that wider in our minds as well? Remove those last pieces of emissions that we really cannot get rid of while well, we've tried everything we can by 2030s. Like, how do we remove those through the atmosphere, from the atmosphere through nature-based solutions? We are really there as well, looking at innovative ways to do that. We, for example, have invested in a company called Kelp Blue, which is growing a giant kelp forest off the coast of Namibia. They plan to harvest the kelp to make biostimulant out of it. But at the same time, kelp has a tremendous possibility to sequester carbon. So that's one. But we're also looking at other projects like regenerative agriculture that will help create local jobs and opportunities, enhance biodiversity and help us sequester carbon from the atmosphere. Well, and report is the last, it's, it's the obvious one, right? We need to be really transparent about how we do this and where we are going to go with it. But none of that is fast, right? All of this is going to take time. It's, it's not a linear process of, oh, we're going to reduce our emissions 10% per year. It's not as easy as that. It's probably going to go up for a bit. And then by the time all the projects that we're starting to implement now will come online, there will be a steep decline. But those are stories that are sometimes hard to explain if you can just communicate through carbon numbers and data. As you say, probably not a linear journey and a lot of dependencies in Southern Africa, specifically in South Africa, there's an energy crisis at the moment and there is an uphill battle to get in place the right policy and regulatory environment to enable independent power producers to produce power for their own operations and even beyond that, one hopes to distribute to the grid. South Africa and the term load shedding have become synonymous. I think there are no less than six ministers now responsible for sorting out ESCOM and a newly appointed electricity minister too. A number of regulators and no clear direction for how the huge power shortages there are going to be resolved. Meanwhile, progress towards renewable energy solutions is painfully slow and the policy and regulatory environment is just not conducive across the board. I think that's probably a similar position in quite a number of markets. I wonder if you could paint us a picture of how quickly you think you're going to be able to replace some of your coal-based power, which I think you said accounts for 50% of your emissions, with renewable energy sources. I'm very aware, sitting in Botswana as I am today, of the huge solar potential that we have in Botswana, Namibia, South Africa. You spoke about hydrogen too. I've read the Hydrogen Society Master Plan in South Africa. I know how instrumental your parent company, Anglo-American, has been working with the Department of Science and Innovation and others to develop that master plan. It's an awesome master plan with huge socioeconomic potential for South Africa. Namibia is advancing quite well with its 
plans as well in hydrant. So there's lots to be excited about, but the pace of implementation is awfully slow. And you've made a commitment, a commitment to get to net zero in scope one and two by 2030. That's very near term. It's only less than seven years away. Tell us about your confidence in being able to get, whether it's solar or wind or other sources of renewable energy, into your operations within that time frame. Honestly, the, the seven year, not, not just for this reason, but seven years is, 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 is what's keeping me awake at night because it, it is awfully fast. At the same time, I think, yes, we are confident because we have the plans in place. For renewable electricity, as, as you know, we are part of Anglo-American and we're working very closely with Anglo on this. Anglo has started a partnership with EDF Renewables called Invusa, through which they are developing, or we are developing with them, a regional renewable energy ecosystem. So with them, we are developing a 34 megawatt wind plant in uh, Namibia next to NAMLEP operations. And we are also working with them to getting basically 85% renewable electricity through wheeled projects from the northern and eastern Cape, wind and solar, through our Venetia mine in South Africa. So for South Africa and Namibia, we are working very closely with them. They are working very closely with the South African government on, on developing these projects. And we are working, our, our NAMDEP colleagues are engaging very closely with the Namibian government. So I'm fairly confident that is that, that will go ahead and will succeed. We're also looking at an on-site solar plant with Envosa again for Venetia. And the studies and the site assessments are currently going on for that. For Debswana, and as you know, we are in a joint venture with the government of Botswana uh, for Debswana operations. And Debswana is planning a significant amount of renewable, uh, mostly solar. They're looking at wind as well. There's also quite some wind potential in Botswana, interestingly enough, but your solar opportunities are great, of course. So we're working very closely with them doing the, rel- need- the needed assessments. We're also working, we're in constant dialogue with BBC and with the government, etc., to really look at, okay, how can we join forces and collaborate? Because making sure that diamonds are a carbon neutral or clean product that consumers want is, is really a shared interest between ourselves and, and the governments where, of, of where these products come from. I am confident. It's, do we need to go faster? Yes, we do. But I think the whole world needs to go faster to address climate change much, much faster. Uh, so if I could accelerate, I would. But I think we're going as fast as we can. Well, thanks for that, Kirsten. I'm not going to touch on the, the negotiation over the, the renewal of the licence for De Beers in Botswana, because I know that that's a matter for the negotiators behind closed doors, but our fingers are crossed that um, those negotiations will be concluded before too long. It's such an amazing story, the joint venture between De Beers and Botswana, and living in the country as I do, there's so much to point to, tangible development outcomes that that joint venture has materialised. I visited your mine in Zhuaneng, and you were referring earlier to storytelling and, and telling the stories. It's more than the data in the way that you reflect it, and there for anyone who's not had privilege that I've had to have a tour of that mine. It's a story of love. They tell a story of love from the moment you walk through the gate to when you leave. And it is a spotless clinical operation, far removed from the sort of mines that I've had the opportunity to visit in other parts of the world, albeit in other commodities. So if you ever get the opportunity, I 
thoroughly recommend that. And the magnitude of the operations, you referred to the work that you're doing on those hydrogen trucks, or rather that Anglo-American has been leading on those hydrogen trucks and your ambition to have hydrogen haulage trucks to replace um, diesel trucks in due course in Botswana and, and elsewhere. The size of these monsters is only really appreciated when you get up close to them. I had my whole management team actually come with me on that tour and I couldn't get them out of the cabin of the truck. So used by, <laughs> I didn't know we had so many petrol heads in the company. Anyway, I want to talk to you in a little bit about nature-based solutions. I'd love to get some perspective also on how you're approaching digitalization with a view to creating efficiencies within your operations, or with a view to, to getting to closer energy efficiency. But before we do that, I wonder if I could ask you to touch on the point we spoke about a little earlier, the imperative of a just transition in the three markets specifically where you source in in southern Africa. So the goals of the different stakeholders for De Beers in, in southern Africa vary significantly, whether you're a government regulator or a resident in a local community, different imperatives, different considerations and different asks. But a common factor across all African markets is the imperative for jobs. We have an unemployment crisis on the continent. And I wonder if you could give us some examples, if you're able to, of how you're approaching addressing climate change and finding renewable energy solutions and some of the other solutions with a view also to creating employment opportunities in the manufacturer, perhaps, of local solutions to the problems that you're seeking to address. I hope you get the direction that I'm invited to take with us there. No, definitely, I do. And it is, it's the million dollar question, right? As the bears, our sustainability framework called Building Forever and Carbon Neutrality is very much part of that. And I think that is the essential part also from the just transition debate. It's that the way you address climate change can never be seen separate from your other social and environmental goals and policies as a country and as a company. And that's why I really think that a beer's integrated approach makes, makes a lot of sense. It's really, we have different pillars, but they're all very much connected. Well, we work very closely with our colleagues working on the well, what's called partnerships for thriving communities to really look at, okay, how can we indeed create the jobs and skills that are needed? Because for me, the just transition is not about how do we keep people employed in coal, right? It's really about what new opportunities does this new green economic future offer us and offer society. And that goes beyond producing solar panels, right? That is really about entrepreneurship, but it's about circularity. It's about batteries, it's about solar panels, but it's also about what kind of jobs can we actually create. Two weeks ago, I was at a, well, a technical school next to Mohalakwena, so not next to Diamond Mines. It was with, with, with an Anglo training. And, and there's a technical school there. It's a school that's supported by Anglo, and the kids are being trained to become engineers and car mechanics, etc. They're trained for the jobs that are needed now. We are putting a lot of thinking in that for, for all the countries where we operate. It's like, okay, what are the jobs for the future, right? Can we start training kids on how to maintain electric vehicles? Can we help people start businesses to install rooftop solar? Pretty relevant for South Africa at the moment. Things like we see now rooftop solar being installed in quite a few places, but there's nobody to actually clean the solar panels. Well, you know, you lose about 30% production after a month because of dust that piles up. So somebody needs to show up with basically a hose and cleaning material to clean that. So how can we really create the facilities for local entrepreneurship on a completely different level? Again, Kelp Blue in Namibia, they're training, how do you say that? People to do these oceanographers. 
That's a hard word. Look, I'm not going to try. <laughs> this country has a massive, massive coastline to really train and especially female researchers. And they have a whole bunch of scholarships for female Namibian PhD students to do the research. They get first, they get swimming lessons because a lot of them don't, don't know how to swim, right? And then, and then diving lessons and they get those opportunities. So there's so many opportunities. The whole, you talked about nature-based solutions. I was, I think it was the very first course on carbon credit verification was given at one of the, I think it was University of Cape Town last year. So there's only like 20 people in the whole of Africa that have been trained in verifying carbon credits while looking at, I think there's like 30 companies just here in the Netherlands doing that, right? So how could we really grab, identify the skills that are needed and help build those? And we're in early stages, we're really identifying them. We had a call with the International Youth Foundation that our colleagues in the social field are already working with. There's women that uh, the BS has a strong partnership with training female entrepreneurship to really connect those initiatives to what a green, clean future needs. But it's not easy. As you're speaking there and you're talking about in your communities, I'm reminded the amount of time you spent working with civil society organizations to further socioeconomic development or upliftment in communities. And I can see why De Beers wanted you in this role. The imperative that the company, through you, with you, is bringing to working with the communities and society at large around your operations. And I'm pleased that we've spoken about the human imperative in climate change debate and, and the transition, because it's often neglected in the big calls and fora at a global and international level. And it's where the rubber hits the road in developing countries and in particularly in African countries. So it's great to hear that De Beers is thinking in this way and approaching the energy transition in this way. I said that I'd like to invite you to talk about nature-based solutions. You've referred to the KELP project that you're funding or an equity shareholder in, I'm not quite sure, in, in Namibia. You've referred also just briefly there to the carbon markets and to the voluntary carbon markets. To what extent are you actually involved in trying to ensure that countries in which you operate have the appropriate legislative and regulatory environment for you and other operators to be able to benefit from the carbon markets through some of the projects that you're advancing? That is really the, the responsibility of the country, but we're obviously trying to monitor it very closely to understand it. And I think with the carbon market, the challenge is that so much is still up in the air, right? There's, there's limited mm -hmm. regulations. And I'm worried being having attended a few events where, where people trading in carbon credits, etc., uh, came together. I'm sometimes concerned there's a limited regulatory framework in particular in Africa, because I think that's a real risk. I think we are really clear, well, from our side, that well, carbon offsets, well, one, they have to be last resort. Two, we only want to be involved in projects that are in our host country. So we're not going to buy carbon credits off the voluntary carbon market on the other side of the world because we want to be able to see and monitor ourselves what's going on. We also want to make sure that they benefit the countries and the communities where we operate. We want them to be nature-based. I mean, there's, there's great work and great research going into all kinds of carbon removal technology. But we've said it especially in the areas where we operate, it makes a lot more sense to really look at nature-based solutions that do create jobs, but it also have a positive impact on the environment. And we want them to be carbon removals, just because they are harder, they're more expensive, but they're also easier to verify. And, and, and therefore, there's less of a risk of the projects not doing what they were supposed to do, because it will be much more easier to measure. That makes it challenging. I mean, Southern Africa is not a very carbon-rich 
environment, right? This is not the Congo Basin. So we're going to have to really look at things like soil carbon and really see it. Can we work with farmers to change their practices, but in such a way that they also really benefit from any kind of revenues that come out of it? So that's very much under development. The CALP project is the most advanced and we're really at the moment identifying where else we can invest and who we can work with to develop these projects. But it's there again, I think it's the skills piece is, is a crucial one. And I think we have a role to play there as well, looking at how can we develop local awareness and skills. Because it, it is surprising that in countries like Botswana, I don't think there's a single registered carbon credit project yet. That is something the country could benefit a lot more from. Yes, I'm not aware of a single project. I know there's a lot of effort being placed on exactly what you just referred to, uh, trying to change farming practices, in this case, and practices of livestock holders, cattle owners, and um, to try and restore land and biodiversity. But yes, there's a big opportunity there for the African continent. The quality of some of the nature-based carbon sequestration on the continent is really profound and world-class. You referenced there the Congo Basin being an obvious example. You worked in Gabon, I know, because we met when you were living there a few years ago. I wonder if I could take a little diversion with you. I'm sure you've been following their progress in terms of their commitments to preserving their important rainforest. Well, they've been accredited with carbon credits, but it's getting those monetized in the markets that they're struggling with. When you look back at uh, where Gabon was when you lived there and where it is today, can you take some pride? I know you you were contributing and working with some of the actors involved in trying to ensure that the country took the right trajectory. How do you view that? That's a hard one. I mean, they've certainly come a long way. They were already at the time, right, very much working on promoting red projects and promoting their Mm -hmm. country. Well, it is one of the the biggest untouched pieces of rainforest in the world that Gabon controls and and they take pride in that and they're doing really well. What I was at the time trying to do is was trying to get a whole series of different junior miners that were exploring for iron ore in the in the forest in the border area between Congo Brazzaville, Gabon and Cameroon, who basically to coordinate and make sure they wouldn't develop three different railway lines and 10 different roads and 50 different villages, etc., thereby basically erasing a big chunk of rainforest. We did at the time manage to get a dialogue going, but then the iron ore prices collapsed and most of these companies vanished. I think a lot of them don't even exist anymore. It was a very frustrating environment to work in, quite frankly. Mm. Interesting, but frustrating. But I do think that is iron ore prices are going up again and, and, and the reserves in that forest will remain very interesting. I know there's others active there again. But that landscape level engagement and commitment will always have to be, I think, the crux of any kind of mining sector development. I learned a lot about that operating in that environment but I think anywhere that that has to be crucial but it's really challenging when you're dealing with competing governments and competing companies right to get everybody to agree for the sake of the climate and and quite frankly the world. Mm. The importance there you attributed in that role to bringing in that case a number of private sector stakeholders but other stakeholders together and to agree on an integrated plan for in that case infrastructure to support those mines. Kirsten, you referred there to the work that you were involved in at a much earlier stage in your career and before you joined De Beers in supporting multi-stakeholder dialogues. I wonder if you could give us a a flavour of how De Beers approaches stakeholder dialogue, stakeholder relations, stakeholder consultation, particularly in in relation to your three countries of operation in Southern Africa. 
I think stakeholder dialogue is a crucial part and listening to the communities and countries where we operate is a crucial part of how we operate. In South Africa, at a national level, we obviously work very closely with Anglo-American, who's, who's our, our key partner there in engagement with the government, but we also have obviously our, our community engagements. For Botswana and Namibia, we operate in joint ventures with the government. So there, anything we do is always in, in very close coordination with our government partners. But I think, I mean, stakeholder dialogue and making sure that whatever we do, we listen to to the people involved and concerned is crucial part of how we operate. And I can only speak for the climate part, but that's definitely what we do. I mean, as a responsible business, you can't operate otherwise because you, you, leave, you use your, your, your social license, but in general, your, your ability to operate effectively. Great. I don't know if we've got a moment to talk about technology and digitalization. I mentioned the, the hydrogen truck, a really impressive feat of engineering that was developed in a very short window, I think, during COVID. But can you give us some other examples of how you're applying novel technologies to your operations, specifically in, in a way that is helping to address some of those carbon emission reduction targets that you've set out? I can't to an extent say that I'm not an engineer, but I think... In this area of work, you constantly have to apply new technologies, right? Because it's changing by the day. I think for solar and wind, we have figured it out. The world has figured it out. We know how to do it. But in the whole alternative fuels discussion is definitely a piece where innovation needs to happen on a daily basis. There's the hydrogen trucks, but also electrification. I think one of the things is that our, for example, our mine, our Venetia mine in South Africa is now going underground, which means we're going to be electrifying a large part of the operations, which which is a technological feat in itself, but also means that by 2026, we will be around 85% carbon neutral because we have renewable electricity and the mine will be massively electrified. And just closing an open pit and going underground is, is in 21% energy efficiency, for example. There's a lot of work going on on truck and shovel fleet efficiency. It's really about how do you operate? What routes do you drive? When do you turn the engine on and off? There's a lot of digitization going into that as well. So there's there's a lot of work there. We're doing a lot of work and again, I'm, I'm again giving Venetia on ventilation on demand, which is going to improve efficiency. So there's lots of work happening in, in that space. It's really about how do we do more with smaller equipment, right? That needs less energy, I should say. So, But it, it is a, a matter of constant rethinking and, and constant improvement, which is a, ch- a challenge. The mining industry, I don't think is naturally super innovative, right? And we've been crushing rocks for thousands of years. Mm. And yes, the trucks have gotten bigger, but other than that, technology hasn't changed fundamentally, but it is changing now and it is changing quite rapidly. Also, we are working quite closely with the OEMs, the ones that deliver the trucks, etc., because they also, I think, up to, well, not that long ago, it was like, okay, we've made diesel engines 10% more efficient. That's great, right? But now I think they're starting to realize that's not enough. That is, we will not get there by just getting more efficient. We need alternative fuels, we need battery-operated vehicles, and we need them yesterday. Oh, well, thank you for sharing some insights there on that. I conclude our sessions with a, an invitation to our guests to tell us what they are reading or indeed what they are listening to or enjoy listening to from the podcast world. For what I'm reading, quite an interesting, I'm reading a book called The Unlikely Mr. Rogue, Alive with Ivan Pillay, which is a, well, a book written by a Dutch journalist who was, mm. I told you, my first job was for a small Dutch NGO, which was actually the former Dutch anti-apartheid movement. 
which continued supporting well, South African former frontline states in their democratization process. And she was closely involved. She lived in South Africa when we lived in South Africa. So I knew, and her husband, Ivan Pele, was very important in the underground ANC based in Zambia at the time, and then got a pretty high position in SARS, the South African Revenue mm-hmm. Services. But under Zuma was then accused of leading a rogue unit and being corrupted, etc. Yeah. Exactly. She's married to him. So she writes, it's, it's a fascinating story of well, basically the ANC underground struggle, and then throughout the process of the ANC coming to power, democratization, and it's fascinating, but also quite a sad story of hope and desolution to an extent and anger. I haven't completely finished it yet, so I'm sort of dreading because I know the end is going <laughs> It's getting worse towards the end, but it's a fascinating and interesting story. And for me, it's interesting because there's quite a few people that I know or that I've come across in, in my work that actually show up in the book. I'll look it up. You should, yeah. Podcasts, I'm, Bloomberg has a good one just to keep up on climate. I forgot what it's called. But yeah. It's their climate podcast, which I, I like trying to keep up. And otherwise, I tend to every once in a while binge on really terrible true crime stuff as well. I listened to an interesting one on the Unabomber the other day. I had no idea. Thank you so much for being with us today. It's been lovely to see you and to speak with you. And I want to thank you for sharing with our audience the energy transition journey that you're leading at De Beers, for giving us some insights into all of the constituent elements of that. We wish you fortune and a lot of strength and energy as you look to make this transition over the next seven years, a very short timeline, given the scale of your operations and the quantum of emissions that need to be abated there. Thank you very much, Kirsten. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.